Hey, everybody. Welcome to Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and I'm so happy you're here with us. If you're just joining for the first time, I am a special needs mom, a special needs attorney, and a best-selling author. So please grab your coffee, and if you're like me, you might be listening in your car. I spent a lot of time in the car in my day. And please join us for some important discussions to help you thrive in this complex special needs world. Each week, we're going to chat with parents and experts, and sometimes parents who are experts, to offer compassionate advice for all stages of your life. These are the conversations you would have with your best friend if your best friend was an expert like me. Let's go. Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and this is Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. So it is September, and we are back on the air. I've got a special two-part series that I wanted to bring to you during this very special back-to-school time. I am having a moment of profound gratitude right now. I am loving all of the back-to-school photographs and videos and everything that I'm seeing online. Um, it is bringing me back to the days when I shipped my two little girls off to school. Oh my God, my, my little Elizabeth just loved her days at Perkins. She was just so thrilled. If I have said this before, I'm sorry for repeating myself, but let me tell you, Perkins School for the Blind was just such a magical place for her. She, um, she just felt like it was Disney World. Uh, forget Disney. It was all about Perkins and all about the people. Uh, a week ago, I went to a fundraiser for Smile Mass. What a great organization. And I was so, uh, I was just so, um, fortunate to run into Kathy, a woman who used to manage the cottage, Oliver Cottage, that Elizabeth was connected to. The cottages were places that if a student lived at Perkins, that's where they lived. But even if a student didn't live there and wasn't residential, they were still connected to a cottage. That's where they ate their meals. That's where they kept their equipment. Um, the students were so involved and had so many things going on that they, they needed to have a cubby. They needed to have just a home base, if you will. And Kathy was the woman or the person who just kept it all together for Elizabeth and for many students like Elizabeth. So Elizabeth was in Oliver Cottage. Um, and it was just, grand to see Kathy. And I didn't even recognize her at first. <laughs> she recognized me. That's how, um, how so involved she got with her students and her families. Now you have to understand my Elizabeth has been gone for coming up on eight years now. So it has been a long time. And she, even with our masks on, cause we are still masking up, um, she recognized me. I didn't even recognize her at first. And, um, and then I was like, Oh my God, it's Kathy. 
I, it was so nice to see her. I was so grateful to have that moment with her. And it has been such a joy to see all those pictures of all the kids going back to school. Just, I love having those memories. I love, um, seeing everybody getting dressed up for their first days. Um, my Caroline did not love school as much. <laughs> was not as big of a fan. Uh, always had a lot of anxiety, but eventually would get into the swing of things. And um, I've done a, quite a few episodes about that. We talked about how I homeschooled her for a few years, and that was that was big fun. We we really had a blast. But um, anyway, to move on to um, my two part series. I am going to um, introduce a different topic here that kind of blows my mind. And there, this article came out in the Today Show blog called Autism Wars, Why Parents and Autistic Adults Are Battling. This is not just in the autism world, by the way. This is parents of intellectually disabled kids as well as all other disabilities as well. It's in the um, deaf and blind communities. It's in many disabled communities. And why we are pitted against each other as parents and as disabled adults, I just cannot tell you. I you know, in this world of scarce resources, we need to come together. And so I was incredibly uh, lucky to get two wonderful advocates from, I don't even want to say there's an argument to be made because there's really not, but maybe two sides of the presentation here. Carrie Magro, uh, Magro, I'm sorry, I knew I was going to pronounce his name wrong, um, and Amy Lutz. Carrie is an autistic self-advocate who is just a phenomenal uh, self-advocate and uh, just wonderfully, um, wonderfully supportive member of the disability community and extremely successful person in general. And then Amy Lutz, who is a fantastic parent of a young man who is autistic and who is on the severe end of the autism spectrum. And it was really thrilling to interview both of them to have this discussion. So Carrie and I talked about all of the work that he's been doing in his community and, you know, talking about diversity and inclusion. And um, he speaks a lot about neurodiversity and about bullying prevention, what what his life was like growing up. And he talks about, he talks to parents a lot, first of all. So you need to look at that. Um, he's a phenomenal public speaker. He works a lot in the entertainment industry and in making sure that disability is seen 
and is represented in the public eye. And we thank him for that. Um, he, um, is somebody who is grateful to his parents for everything that they did for him. And, um, I want to make sure that I make clear that he does not advocate this idea that there is a war between parents and self-advocates. Um, he is a best-selling author and award-winning national speaker. And, you know, it is hard to believe that he was nonverbal at two and a half years old. He's overcome countless obstacles to get where he is today. Um, and that where he is today is that he has a doctorate degree and he is currently the CEO and founder of KFM Making a Difference, a nonprofit corporation that focuses on disability advocacy and housing. And he works very hard in the area of disability employment as well. So I am very excited to have Carrie on the show today. So here we go. Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and this is Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. So I'm super excited today because we have Carrie Magro today, who I found on a great um, article. Um, it was on the Today Show articles on autism wars. And I don't know if you were following this trend of articles, folks, but there's been this uh, a lot of back and forth about parents and uh, parents of kids with autism and adults with autism going back and forth talking about treatment plans, especially around ABA and different different um, ideas about how they feel about it. So there's a lot of parents of younger children who are defending ABA and other types of treatments that are similar to that. And then there are adults with autism who are not feeling so positive about it. And, you know, and then some other things about, um, about autism and, um, and, and I'm going to let Carrie talk about that a little bit more, but there's so much more to Carrie and so much more about what he has been able to do in the disability community. And I am so freaking excited to have him here with us today. So Carrie, thank you so much for joining the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So um, can you just tell our audience a little bit about your background and what your kind of early childhood experiences were like? Yeah, sure. So I, I was non-speaking until I was two and a half. Uh, and then it took my parents 18 months to get formal diagnosis of autism at four. Uh, grew up in mostly special education classrooms. Uh, dealt with uh, not speaking in complete sentences till I was seven and having some very uh, severe sensory integration dysfunction. All of my senses were kind of high into 11 growing up as a kid. But thanks to the love and support of my family and uh, years of occupational speech 
physical music and theater therapy, I was able to overcome many of my challenges. I still autistic today. I still deal with challenges. I have something called an invisible disability and that I like to call it and have had the opportunity today to uh, receive my doctorate in education from New Jersey State University while also uh, celebrating my 10th year uh, this year as a professionally certified public speaker, one of the few autistics in, in the country who have the accreditation and uh, gain the opportunity to travel the globe and to talk about not only autism, but inclusion and and the importance of accepting differences because it's so important and really normalizing disability. And along the way, getting to write several books, work as an autism entertainment consultant, and also have my own 501c3 nonprofit organization. So, yeah, you're you're just not busy enough. So um, clearly, clearly, you are just not doing enough for our community at all. <laughs> um, and you're only in your early 30s. It's amazing. Um, you do stand, though, as a beacon of hope to all of us parents out there who really wonder about our kids. Um, you know, I don't know how much you know about my background, but my daughter passed away. So I'm not really speaking for myself anymore. But I know when my daughter was younger, I would often look for role models for what she was going to be like when she was older. You know, um, it's the big question for parents and siblings, too. What's what's my brother, sister, child going to be like? What's their life going to be like? And uh -huh. especially for parents whose children are nonverbal and can't express what's going on inside of them, to be able to talk to you, to be able to read books and articles that you've written, it is an amazing gift that you are giving us, Carrie. I can't even tell you how strongly I feel about, about that gift that you're giving to all of us and to the world. So first of all, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And I wanna, I wanna ask you about that moment. It's a, something that I bring up on the podcast a lot. When did you what was your moment for when you got to this point in your life where you not only were achieving for yourself, but you realized that you might want to do for other people as well? Uh, it was it was when I was diagnosed. Uh, well, it was not only when I was diagnosed, it was when I found out about my autism diagnosis. I was uh, in a social skills class. I was 11 and a half years old and we were playing disability celebrity bingo where we were learning that Michael Jordan has ADD, Magic Johnson has ADHD. And the teacher told all of us at the end of the class that all of us are special. And I always knew I was special, but this was one of the first time I was hearing words like ADD, ADHD for the first time. And I wanted to learn more about what my diagnosis was. So I sat my parents down right after school that day. I'm sure they were thinking it was the birds and the bees conversation. So yeah. they were kind of relieved from that extent. But uh, they, they finally told me that, uh, Carrie, you have something called autism. And it was so life changing to hear that because it made me want to learn more about how autism affected my learning and more about my strengths and challenges. And that's when I really started to become a self-advocate, motivated towards not only helping myself, but later down the line, uh, helping, uh, trying to help countless others in our community and trying to be a role model for the community. 
what gives you that strength though? Because I know that you write a lot and speak a lot about bullying. And I know that you experienced some of that or a lot of that. Um, what, what gives you that strength to continue on as an advocate in the community? I think it's really, I mean, a, a lot of it just goes to my own upbringing. I, I really didn't know about any Temple Grandin, Stephen Shores, and it felt very isolating at times. I was bullied as a kid, and I really wish at times I just had like an adult to look up to who could just tell me it was possible uh, to be successful, to have a full-time job, to live independently, to have a relationship. So Yes, yes. So you are bringing that into the entertainment world now. And it's challenging, right? Because we want people in front of the camera. We want people behind the camera. We want people writing. We want, we want disabled folks in all aspects of mm-hmm. entertainment. Yep. And you are, you, and what is your role in all of this? You're consulting. What, what do you do? So I've been consulting in the entertainment world since 2009, uh, off and on. And I grew up loving theater. Uh, it was actually one of the biggest reasons why I think I was able to overcome a lot of my communication and sensory challenges growing up. And once I became an adult, I realized, so it's probably not going to be on Broadway, but I decided to uh, change my career path in that in trying to bring a realistic portrayal of autism to our entertainment industry. Unfortunately, today, I mean, I've worked on uh, countless projects such as Joyful Noise uh, through Warner Brothers uh, and indie films. And then also in 2019, HBO's Mrs. Fletcher, which focuses on a non-speaking young child. And uh, I, I not only hope that I could bring realistic portrayals, but I could also use my platform to really have larger conversations about inclusion and the importance of actually giving autistic actors an opportunity, not only autistic actors, but disabled actors an opportunity to not only audition, but giving them opportunities to have those roles in television and film today. That's incredible. I love it. And there's so many great um, shows and movies out there now. And they just a short while ago, there was just nothing, you know, Um, but we're finally getting some, although they are getting canceled a lot. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I I was just having a conversation the other day. So uh, everything's going to be okay which is this amazing show that was on oh, Freeform. Yes. Love it. Uh, Loved it. The, the lead in it, uh, one of the leads uh, was autistic and was also playing an autistic character and they got canceled after uh, two seasons, even though it received critical acclaim. And uh, it was so disheartening because right before that, Atypical, uh, which a lot of people thought we we're gonna have five seasons, got canceled after the fourth. Uh, and they were able to conclude it very nicely, but uh, I, I wish there were just more opportunities to have. And don't get me wrong, we have The Good Doctor, which is now going on season five. So fingers crossed we get to keep that one going for a little while longer. Yeah, I think that one, it, it hits it, it, it hits the mainstream a little bit e- easily, more easily because it's just, it's got less disability themes and much more like, you know, it's all about the medical stuff. Um, But Speechless, which was my fave, Uh, 
you know, oh my God, because it totally was my life. You know, my daughter was in a wheelchair and she was much more medically involved, but it just so many of the things like, oh, I, I, I totally, it was like my life, you know, um, fighting with the insurance company and fighting, you know, with the, with the school principal and not having a ramp and, oh, it was crazy. I, I loved it. So, um, but it, I don't think that it hits enough people's, um, sort of experience to really continue, you know, to, to get, to get the, um, the interest level up. So anyway, you keep up the good work because, and I'm going to go to you when I need to get somebody to buy the rights to my book for my life story, because my book came out two years ago. Um, you'll need to get somebody interested in it for my life story. Anyway, my daughter's life story. So, so that's really cool stuff. And I know that there's a lot of young people out there who are really interested in entertainment and film, and they're always wondering how they can get more involved. So this is cool. So now I want to uh, kind of switch gears and talk a little bit about the Autism Wars article. So how did you get involved with um, the writing of that article and get interviewed for that article? So I have a longstanding relationship with the Today Show. Uh, they, I had a Mother's Day video that went viral uh, about four years ago on a, a letter to moms of children on the spectrum on Mother's Day. And it got 1.3 million views. And a year later, I was talking to the Today Show about potentially blogging with them at some point uh, for their articles that they have on their website at today.com. And I kind of was like just astounded when they said, hey, we have the NBC Today Show in the morning, the national broadcast. Would you like to share your story and share how this video went viral? And I was like, yeah, of, of course, you're, you're NBC's Today Show. You're nationally acclaimed. So uh, I was featured on that. And then I've just stayed in contact with them on many different articles, focused on bullying, focused on some of the books I've written, including my children's book. And uh, yeah, we, we've just stayed in touch. And then they were looking to discuss this topic of the autism community for, and uh, autistic uh, autistic adults versus parents in some instances. And they asked me my opinions and I, and I was happy to, happy to oblige. That's great. And you had some really great things to say and some really great um, pointers on there. Can you give your synopsis of what the article was about? Yeah. So, I mean, there has been a divide about, and, and this has gone on for, for years within our community because autism is a spectrum. We've had individuals like myself who get constantly told on a daily basis, oh, you have autism, but you don't look like you have autism. Right. And I feel like they're, especially with those who have more significant challenges on the autism spectrum, those parents don't feel like the autistic adults do enough to share about those stories. Uh, 
and, and this is when we were kind of talking about language earlier, we, we, we discussed a little bit about one of the other Today Show articles that went out at the same time that Autism Wars uh, blog went out was about language and talking about things like people with autism versus uh, autistic individual, identity first, first, first person first. So it really just talked a, a lot more about the divide that we currently have in the community. Talked a little bit about some autistic adults who have kind of been shunned uh, for sharing about topics such as applied behavioral analysis and kind of how the there's a huge divide between parents and autistic adults there as well. So it goes into a lot more detail on a lot more topics, but that was kind of the basis of the Autism Wars article that we currently uh, had out like maybe three weeks ago now. Yeah. Um, there were there were some um, there was some really bad feedback about parents sharing stuff about their children on on social media. Yep. You know where they would be in a you know social media parenting group and they would share about oh I'm having I'm I'm showing a video of my child having a tantrum or having some behaviors and um, somebody would consider that an adult with autism would consider that, you know, child abuse, for example, right. and it would be all right. massive negative feedback about it. Um, so there's just a lot of back and forth, back and forth about it. So there's the ADA issue, there's parents sharing about their children on social, um, you know, I, I never did that. I have probably two or three negative videos, uh, not videos, pictures of my daughter, like ever, like being in the hospital or, um, some kind of negative sort of something negative about, about her healthcare or anything like that information wise. Um, I, I always was very careful about that, but, um, I understand parents needing support and wanting to reach out to share information, request information, et cetera. Um, it's, it's a double-edged sword, yeah, right? Yeah. It's, you definitely have to tiptoe a line. And I mean, especially with social media, I mean, I, I know one of the biggest autistic adult complaints is that these children can't consent to some of these videos. So it's it, it's it's really about a privacy issue and just trying to think about if if they could tell you, would you would they want this out there for the world to say, I think from an educational standpoint, uh, internally, there there is a need for some of this, especially when we're talking about meltdowns and the, the overall obstacles, uh, especially that teachers may face or first responders, for example. But posting it on a, a social media platform like Facebook for the world to say is kind of a whole different story yeah. versus doing it in an isolated area where it's more education based in, in nature. So we have a private Facebook group, which is members only. So it's very limited, but that doesn't stop somebody from taking the video out. Downloading it, yep. 
I mean, it's, it's really hard to control that stuff once it's out, you know, um, that's, that's a really challenging thing. And I have, um, I, I understand how people feel about that sort of thing. And the thing is when my kids were young, which was a long time ago, I'm not going to tell you how old I am. Um, we didn't do that. We had live support groups that we went to if you could actually get out of the house, which some of us could not do. And, but then at least you were in person and you were sharing things in person, but you weren't going to be able to share what that tantrum looked like and to be able to observe and be able to share pointers um, it, it's not the same. So there's the pros and cons, the pluses and the minuses about being able to actually watch something and to be able to see those videos online, those demonstration videos, for example, that are posted for educational purposes. Those are obviously something that somebody consented to mm -hmm. at one point or another, right? So yeah, it's really, um, it's, it's a really sticky yeah, it, it, It's like you said, it's a double-edged sword. It's kind of, you have to tiptoe the line and really just think about what, what, what you're posting and, and kind of not, not necessarily 1984, like everyone's watching, but you, you kind of have to have that mindset sometimes, <laughs> honestly. So, but I, I was so glad that article came out because it gave us a larger conversation to talk about unity as well. I had so many parents reach out to me and talk about the importance of not only realizing the spectrum, but trying to find advocates and, and and build friendships between autistic adults and parents as well. So while there were some naysayers who, who were talking about, uh, there was especially a line about martyr parents and th that kind of went into a huge debate online. Uh, I, I think there is parts of the article that can really be beneficial, especially towards the unity aspect that I think I was trying to approach that interview with, especially. Well, you had some great advice about staying away from large groups yes. in the online community, if you want to share that. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so much toxicity, especially when it comes to social media pages. And I actually did my dissertation research on uh, how uh, perceptions of resources for parents of autistic children who are part of online communities and we, in my quality of research, one of the things I've realized is that many of these parents, after the initial diagnosis, were going to online Facebook groups to get any type of support because the doctor would just kick them out and they would have no resources available to them. But the ones that had the most success were the ones who were in local Facebook groups versus I know in the Today article, they mentioned a group called Autism Inclusivity, which has 67,000 members. And the ones who had the most success, speaking from military families, speaking from families with children with less significant challenges and more severe uh, significant challenges, really just having that localized base in their area uh, support was really beneficial towards helping them and their children too. That's really great advice. Like I said, we have our own uh, smaller circle of care group and 
we find that people are much more willing to share information back and forth. So what do you think about the whole ABA wars, you know, back and forth? We love it. We hate it. It's torture. It's the best thing since sliced bread. Did you do ABA when you were a kid? I, I, I didn't. I, I never did ABA. ABA was well, when I was going for early intervention. ABA really didn't start getting popular in my area until the mid '90s, and I was diagnosed in '92. So a lot of that first five years was really focused on PT, uh, speech, and occupational, and then integrating music and theater later down the line. But I, there is such a huge defied about ABA. And I mean, it all comes down to, and I know so many autistic adults say that ABA is taking away my child. It's taking away what makes them who they are. That's that, that's the argument. And I think from what I, I get from a lot of parents is that when you look at ABA as it is today versus what it was 20 years ago when it was kind of just starting getting popular. When we looked at re we look at reformed ABA, we are able to see more of the benefits of it. Um, but this is all perspective. I, I wish I could give a better helpful understanding of my own personal perspective, but I don't think that would be fair to, I know kids who are on the spectrum who are BCBAs today and speak so highly of it. And then I know other individuals who have PTSD and anxiety and a lot of other challenges. So I've, I've kind of never thrown my two cents and my own perspective in it because I don't have that first person approach. I'm not an expert in BCBA, uh, but I do know that there is such a, such a divide and I, I wish we would do more constructive listening versus just name calling and the constant bullying I see on this topic online for uh, advocates such as uh, Eileen Lamb, who was also mentioned in the uh, Autism at Wars article. She's been called some very demeaning uh, names over time uh, based on giving her autistic child, she's also autistic herself, uh, ABA therapy, so. Yeah, I, I think that she speaks for her own family and if anybody gets some comfort and some advice out of that then great right i mean that's what we're all out there for i know that i feel that way when i do this podcast i'm just trying to offer some information and if it's helpful for somebody that's great you know so one thing that i know is that we need to really focus on a person-centered plan for everybody because what works for one person is not necessarily what's going to work for somebody else. And everybody needs to put together their own team, their own clinical team. And when you're a kid, your parents are the ones who have to make those decisions for you based on the advice and counsel that they're getting. And you were very fortunate to have some great parents who really were able to put together a great team and trusted their their gut and you know they were they were able to um just really um give you the you know i think give you a future like they didn't limit you they they let you reach your full potential right 
Yeah. I mean, my, my, my parents were my greatest advocates. They, they always will be. Uh, and my family too. I mean, with, without their love and support, I, I have a quote I, I, I shared years ago that went viral that said, um, autism doesn't come with an instruction guide. It comes with a family who will never give up. As soon as it went viral though, the first time I posted it, I, I realized right away, I needed to change that like right away because I, I had been blessed with a support system who would fight tooth and nail for me every single day. But I know that there are some families who don't have that situation going on currently. So I changed the quote to make sure that it was representing that while this is true for some, it's case by case in our community, which I know a lot of uh, parents uh, appreciated as well. Oh, that's really it's really awesome. So I know that we are already running out of time, but I really didn't want to get off of this um, episode without talking a little bit about, um, because we're about to hopefully next month vote on the Better Jobs, Better Cares Act. Um, jobs are very important for our disability community. We are so unemployed and underemployed, and that's particularly true of the autism community. And so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. I know that's a topic near and dear to your heart. Um, what, what do you think that we could do to do a better job of being more inclusive in the employment community? Well, one of the most important things I think is really focus on the onboarding process. I, I continue to talk about the fact that we need to make it more inclusive in nature for not only those with autism, but a wide range of disabilities. Considering things such as a one day job trial versus the typical interview process for those who might have different communication related challenges. Also looking at things such as having speakers come into your workplace who have first person perspective of what helped them the most. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it's so amazing every year during October, I get asked to speak at so many different uh, Fortune 500 companies and also small businesses about the ROI benefits of hiring talented disabled individuals in the workplace. Um, for April, well, this year we got to work with Lowe's, Wyndham Worldwide, uh, Wegmans. I mean, there's uh, not Wegmans, sorry. Wegmans was the year before, but it was just so amazing that so many groups just want to have a, a one hour lunch and learn as part of a professional development to learn more about the importance of this topic and what they could be doing, getting themselves set up on websites such as the Disability Equality Index to see where they fall with the Googles of the world and the groups that scored 100 points uh, for the most part uh, for their disability best practices as well. So there's a lot we could be doing, but I certainly do know that we need to do more. The fact that some states indicate that up to 90% of autistic adults are either unemployed or underemployed uh, needs to stop. Uh, we, we, we can't see that as we, we see over 500,000 autistic children are becoming adult, uh, adults within the next decade. And uh, we need to be ready for that. We need to do more than just the publicly funded services that these kids receive until the age of 18 or when they age out of school at 21. Right, 
Right. Because sitting around at home collecting a, a social security check is, it's not very fulfilling. And nobody really wants that. And the day programs that were originally intended for people with an intellectual disability are not built for a young person with autism. They just weren't. So we need to do better. And And they're really not accessible either. (laughs) What can a small company, you know, if you don't have a big company that, employs, you know, 5,000 or 10,000 people, what can a small company like my company of 12 or 15 people, what can we do to be more inclusive? Because we want to be, but it's harder for us. Well, I would definitely recommend putting on your online and offsite literature, your diversity practices, uh, making sure that you are making sure you are having ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, making sure that you're keeping up to line with everything in regards to accommodations that the ADA Act says. In addition to that, I mean, having testimonials from previous employees who have worked in your companies definitely helps build the goodwill of your company to show that there has been a ongoing process of having successful disabled individuals in your specific uh, small business uh, work for you. Um, But then also, I mean, definitely uh, when you're thinking about putting applications on websites such as Glassdoor, monster.com, making sure that you are, you say, and and you're kind of open to, we want to hire anyone. Uh, Because I know there are some Uh, services right now that actually, if they see autism or disability on a resume, there are systems that will actually take those resumes out of potential competition. Obviously, this is against the law, (laughs) but uh, there's a lot of tiptoeing in in this, uh, even to this day in 2021, which is shocking to believe. That is horrifying to hear. Horrifying. Okay, um, bullying. Is there bullying going on at the adult level as well as in schools? I mean, we know there's bullying going on in school and uh, that is a whole podcast in and of itself. So we can't talk about that today. But at the adult level, do you see bullying happening with adults as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we for so long in our community, we talked about bullying as in school age children. Mm-hmm. And and that gets me really annoyed at times. And and, and sometimes I do it as well. And I, I kind of slip up what I'm saying and I say, well, school age children really need to stop bullying. We as a society know that there is an ongoing trend towards sexual harassment lawsuits in many of our businesses. And we do sexual harassment training for that. And it's a huge topic, but what a lot of people don't realize is while sexual harassment lawsuits are on the rise, also workplace bullying lawsuits are on the rise. There is a constant amount of especially senior leadership positions where there are complaints in the uh, department's human resources discussing this uh, topic of workplace bullying. And uh, we, we, de- we definitely need to do a better job of making sure that we're normalizing uh, bullying as 
not only something that happens in children, but also happens in adults as well. So we have months like uh, October, which is National Bullying Prevention Month, where we get to have larger conversations about this topic. And uh, lo and behold, it also falls in line with National Disability Employment Awareness Month. So I hope that topic is coming across. Yeah, and, and is that particularly um, particularly divisive or uh, penetrating in our community, in the disability community? Are we seeing that a lot more? Well, we're, we're seeing people being taken advantage of, for sure. I, I, I think some of the times the bullying might be unrecognized by some of the disabled employees. Uh, sometimes it is, though. Uh, I, I, I see that. Uh, well, because we, we have statistics from the Department of Labor that indicate, for example, that those with disabilities are likely to stay at a job longer. They are more likely to have lower absenteeism. Mm -hmm. And most of the onboarding fees, when we talk about reasonable accommodations, only cost about 500 to $600. And then there are no more fees after that. So sometimes when we post about that, an employer sometimes thinks to themselves, oh, wait a second, we could take advantage of these individuals. I'm not saying that's everyone, but there have been situations where that has come across, especially in our media today. And it's it's just so disheartening. Um, so we have to do a better job of discussing this topic overall, for sure. Wow. Yeah, it struck me a lot as we were going around and around over the last, you know, 12 to 18 months about DEI that every time we talked about it, nobody included disability in their conversations. And I kept asking why, why? I mean, it's great that we were talking about race. It was great that we were talking about um, about gender, but we were not talking about disability. And we, the numbers are one in five. Yep. One in five. Um, so uh, really. It's going to be one in four. Just, uh, just because of the fact that many older adults are gaining their disabilities in later adulthood. So as we see the life expectancy age actually rise, we're seeing more individuals join our disability community, not necessarily in the cognitive, sometimes in the cognitive, but also in the physical disabilities as well. And Carrie, they're staying in the workforce longer too because yep. they need yep. to. So they're older adults, they're in the disability community and they're staying in the employment community as well. So we do need to be aware of that. Oh my gosh, I could talk to you forever. So listen, <laughs> we covered a lot of conversation, but... In all of this, I really want to just trend back to the tips that you have for parents as we talk about um, disabled adults and parents of younger children with disabilities kind of being at war with each other. Um, the central theme being, what would you like to say to each of those factions about becoming one and being in unity with each other? Uh, we are allowed to disagree with each other, mm -hmm. but at the end of the day, let's take more time to listen and let's take more time to be constructive in nature. Let's not try to talk over anyone. Let's just have open and honest conversations about this topic. Let's find 
moderators who can have these conversations where they don't have a role in, in in this conversation. They are simply neutral. And let's just keep the conversation going. I'm, I am seeing you, some forms of unity. I think we as a community with social media, we, we, we have so many more platforms to make things go viral in our community to discuss the issues that are going on in, in our society, whether it's race, sexual harassment, disability, discrimination. So we need to do a better job of realizing that, you know, these problems, some of these problems have been around for years. It's yeah. just now we have a large digital marketing platform where we can actually really d dive into this and realize like, holy crap, this is, this is happening within our community. So let's listen to each other more. Let's make sure that we're being constructive in those conversations and realize that a lot of us just want the same universal goal that anyone else wants, regardless if they have a disability or not. They want to see their child progress, reach developmental milestones and go after their dreams and hopefully live the best quality of life possible. Absolutely. So you heard it here first, folks. Carrie said so. <laughs> And really, there's enough people outside of our group, outside of our disability community that want to run us down. We don't need to do it to each other. So we need to come together and work together. And as I mentioned, right now, we're in an unprecedented um, opportunity right now to grab some the amount of dollars that could potentially be coming our way from the federal government to all of our states to actually have the an impact that we have not seen before. Again, unprecedented yep. and could have an impact, such an impact to do some real person-centered planning and growth in our communities. So I hope that we will keep each other, um, keep connected, keep each other in our thoughts and in our hearts and that we will move together in unity, as Carrie says. So, man, it has been so cool to have you here today. Thank you so much. I am very excited. So Carrie has a book coming out. Uh, um, Carrie, what's your book? What's the name of your book again? Uh, so I contributed a chapter to a book uh, done by AAPC Publishing called Life After Lockdown, Resetting Perceptions on Autism, uh, which kind of just discuss as we're opening up as a community, how we could be more mindful of helping have larger conversations about what these kids need when they go back to school, what adults need going back into the workforce. Yes. Uh, it's kind of a universal all around, what can we do? Now that we are out of, out of lockdown, so to speak, a little bit, uh, what can we do? For, exactly. For exactly what we're talking about. Very excited. Looking forward to it. Carrie, you're amazing. Thank you so much. And I'm so happy that you were able to be here with us. So thank you and have a great night. Have a great night all. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I just wanted to take a second to say how much I appreciate you taking the time to listen to these podcasts. I'm having a blast doing them, and I hope that you're finding the content to be what you were really hoping. If you are, please take a second to leave a rating and a review. It's so helpful in getting this content out to people who really need to hear it. Thank you so much.